0: Mark Steiner, when you're listening to SoundBites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show, broadcasting from your source for cool jazz and more. W E A A eighty-eight point nine FM, the voice of the community. I want you to give you an update from last week's SoundBites, where we talked with Gunpowder Riverkeeper Theo Lagarder, who joined us to talk about his role in halting the completion of a twenty-one mile natural gas pipeline that would have gone through Northern Baltimore. In Harford Counties. The Baltimore County judge, who ruled in the Riverkeeper's favor, cited a failure by state regulators to protect environmentally sensitive waterways in the project's path. We reached out to the Columbia Pipeline Group for comment on the judge's decision and what that decision means for the future of the project. On Riverkeeper Theola Garter's claims last week that no public hearing was held on the pipeline, Scott Castleman, representative of Columbia, said this, We actually held multiple meetings for MB Reliability Project, Columbia hosted five open house community meetings across the 21-mile project footprint. We coupled these meetings with hundreds of landowner visits or contacts. We briefed just about every elected official in the state, federal, state, and local. We organized or participated in meetings and briefings with community groups, neighborhood associations, and non-governmental organizations. And we also participated in FERC's public scoping meetings and MDE's public permit hearings. When asked what the Baltimore County judge's Decision would mean, for the future of the project, Mr. Castleman said, Columbia continues to work with state and local officials to obtain all needed permits for the MB Reliability Project. This critically needed project is designed to strengthen the natural gas delivery system for more than 40,000 Central Maryland residents and will be constructed with the help of Maryland laborers and in a manner that protects important water resources. Gunpowder Riverkeeper Theo LaGarder gave us an update after last week's taping and let us know that there will be a new public hearing on the Pipeline Project to solicit public comments about Project Impacts. That's taking place on the evening of Monday, June 15th at Stevenson University's Owings Mills Campus. Representatives from Columbia and the Maryland Department of Environment will be there to answer your questions and hear your comments. You can find more information at steinershow.org. We took a trip to Washington, D.C. for this week's Sound Bites. But one of the people we sat with was U.S. Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur from Toledo, Ohio, who proposed federal legislation that would forbid retaliation against poultry farmer whistleblowers and protect contract growers who raise chickens for companies like Purdue, Tysons, and the rest. It failed to pass the House Appropriations Committee. This measure gained national attention when it was highlighted by John Oliver on HBO's Last Week Tonight. Contract farming is basically chicken daycare. Companies bring baby chicks to an independent farm, drop them off, and pick them up a little more than a month later when they're fully grown. I'm I'm assuming that's how daycare works. (laughs) 97% of chickens are raised this way. And when the chicken companies describe it, they make the system sound great
1: for farmers. Tyson Foods actually owns the feed and the feed bins, and we actually own the chickens in the house. However, the properties, the equipment, the labor, everything around the business on the farm is actually owned by the farmer.
0: Think about what that guy actually just said. You own the property and the equipment, we own the chickens. That essentially means you own everything that costs money, and we own everything that makes money. Because typically farmers go into a great deal of debt just to build chicken houses and go into the business. And the moment you sign that contract, the chicken companies have a lot of leverage over you. So all those horrible conditions that chickens are kept in, farmers might not care for those either. You can see the whole thing at steinershow.org. Here's a conversation we taped last week in Washington DC with US Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur from Toledo, Ohio, in the United States House of Representatives, West Virginia poultry grower, Mike Weaver, who is president and co-founder of the Contract Poultry Growers Association of the Virginias, and Christopher Leonard, investigative reporter and author of The Meat Racket, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business. We discussed something we've covered a lot here on Soundbites, the complex plight of the contract chicken growers. We looked at how the vertically integrated nature of the poultry industry often leaves chicken growers feeling powerless in the face of large companies they are contractually bound to. So we discussed... Ways the poultry farmers are organizing to change that system, and how their allies in Washington are working to address the problems on a legislative level. I mean, as a congresswoman from an urban area, I mean how did you even get this to become part of your agenda?
2: Well, uh, in Ohio, agriculture is our biggest business. And so for example, we have uh, Campbell Soup, we have companies that process, uh, food. We are a big corn and soybean state. For many years I served on uh, one of Congress's agricultural committees and I have a heritage where I, appreci- I respect the land and the people who work it. And so that's sort of, even though I'm a member of Congress and I have a suit on, that's sort of my image. <laughs> that's your, that's uh, I <laughs> never forget that image because um, uh, at, that world sustains us. And um, I am concerned about our youth because I feel that they're disconnected from the land. When you're disconnected from the environment, it creates a non-survivable creature. And so I have just a sort of a philosophy about um, the importance of um, uh, the connection of human life to plant life and to to the earth. So it's sort of philosophical. goes back a long way. Uh, And then um, I've had experiences in our family where when we were growing up, our father uh, and mother owned a small family grocery. And I got into the chain of agricultural production and going with dad to all of the supply houses and out to the farms in our region. And I saw as a small business person how over a period of time uh, his opportunity – to actually have a free market didn't exist. And if he tried to get prime meat for his customers, he was denied that right because big supermarkets had come in and bought the entire case of meat on consignment. Mm-hmm. And I saw someone who worked so hard, um, unable to obtain the product that he wanted. And his friends, his farmer friends, and um, some of the people that worked in these uh, meat Houses would allow him to buy um, uh, product, but it became increasingly more difficult. And uh, what happened back then in the 50s and 60s was that if you tried to get cantaloupes from Indiana and you'd go back to the farmers who you used to get the cantaloupes from, they would say, sorry, can't sell you those anymore. Uh, the entire field has been bought on consignment. Mm-hmm. The meat companies would say, oh, you can't have the best meat because... A big supermarket has bought that on consignment. So, I, our family lived um, the inability of our family to buy what my father wanted. I thought, what kind of a free market is this? So, I guess very early on, I uh, began to question the way agriculture functioned in the country.
0: So, and you had this press conference yesterday, and you all were at the conference. Mike Weaver and Chris Leonard, you were there, right? All of you all were there. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, I'm going to talk about what you did there. I mean, I know that that and I was reading about some of the background to this, and I was. I had no idea. We've covered the Farm Bill a lot over as it was going towards the vote uh, on our program, uh, but I had no idea there were all these provisions in there for farmers to be protected, but there are all these kind of roadblocks inside that bill to allow that protection to happen. Am I right about that?
2: Yes. Uh, it has taken us almost uh, two decades now to get this issue uh enacted into law, and then enforced in the law. And what happened was, um, even though we tried from 1999 forward to get these farmers who are raising uh, animals, whether it's chickens or hogs or cattle, um, standing in the law and to have contractual rights that were enforceable and sunlight at the Department of Agriculture, where they would have um, the ability to see what a good contract looked like as opposed to some of these terrible contracts that they were getting roped into. Um, In 2008, we finally got their rights enacted into law through the new Farm Bill. It was amazing, it was wonderful. But then what's happened every single year after that is that the same forces that prevented us from enacting that into law for so many years have been able to pass in the Congress uh, laws that say, the Department of Agriculture, you can't enforce that section of the law. That's amazing. So they basically take away the money to that part of the department to enforce the regulations that would implement the law.
0: So, uh, so I, uh, Mike Weaver's with us as well, and and, uh, and uh, Chris Leonard, who I've talked to before, for the, wrote the Meat Racket. And Mike Weaver is president of the Contract Poultry Growers Association of West Virginia. Of the Virginia. Of, of, of the Virginia is. So we of Virginia and West Virginia. So, uh, I'm, so are you? Are you all with this conference, the press conference together, right? Yeah. So, why did you come down?
1: Well, I'm, I'm close for one thing. It's not, <laughs> not that far a commute for me. <laughs> Uh, and to be frank with you, I'm one of the few growers that is in a position where they can speak out and not have to worry about the company terminating them as a grower. And why is that? I don't have to have their money to live. Uh, most growers have to count on that chicken check. You know, they live. A lot of them just live chicken check, chicken check. Uh, but almost all of them have to uh, have that to pay their mortgage. So it, it, that they don't lose their home and their farm. I, I really want to explore this a
0: bit more, and, and and I want you to jump 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 in, Chris. But I I I know if I jump in, but I mean, um, we've interviewed a lot of farmers over the years, and um, a lot of people who farm the same Maryland for Purdue, grow chickens for Purdue and Tyson and, and other companies, <clears throat> and so they all come out talking about how happy they are with their lot, and have lovely farm, lovely farmhouse, and here they are. But, it, but you know that under the surface are people we've met who have said things to us but will never say things on camera or on mic because they are just afraid to lose what they have. I mean, so what are we missing here?
1: Well, I, one of the things I brought up yesterday was uh, uh, the industry has what I call the 10 percenters, and those are the people that they groom so that they have somebody to parade in front of the press or Congress, and they'll sit up there, and while they're playing that jangly music, like John Arroyd called it and in his uh, clip there, they're touting the virtues of the companies. And, you know, they're not stupid. They, they know that there's going to be situations where they're going to have to talk to Congress or to the media, and they need somebody who's going to be a mouthpiece for them, essentially, that speaks well of the companies.
0: So what are some of the stories of men and women that can't come forward? But agree with you? Well, I mean, what, are they, what do they say to you? I mean, what, what, what literally is happening
1: underneath? Well, the there, you so, know, I, I can so. give you examples. Of uh, mm. uh, a girl told me that uh, uh, they told him if he uh, he got a notice that, they were, that the power was going to be term- cut off at his chicken houses because he forgot to pay his bill. <laughs> they told him if that happened he was going to be terminated as a grower. Uh, I've had examples where uh, uh Growers have had a an operation for 10, 15 years, and everything was the same. But all of a sudden, the company decided that they needed to, he needed to move a power line over top of his houses because it might obstruct their trucks coming in and out. it had been that way for fifteen years, and, and if he didn't do that, they were he wasn't going to get chickens anymore. And that happens on a daily basis almost. They'll they'll threaten them with that, and if you know they immediately fear strikes their heart because they know if they don't get that check, they're going to lose their home and their farm. And the companies uh, abuse that terribly.
3: What you say, Chris? Well, <clears throat> I just want to say, to, to, to back up a little bit, I mean, I've seen exactly what Mike's talking about in terms of this atmosphere of intimidation and fear in this business. And there are really kind of tectonic economic forces that create this situation. I mean, first of all, the poultry business, farmers have very little power over their operations. It's sort of ground zero for corporate control of agriculture. It's vertically integrated in that farmers might take on a lot of debt to build these houses, but the companies are the ones who deliver the chicks, deliver the feed, even you know prescribe medicine to the birds. So, the, so much of the business is out of the farmer's hand. Then you couple that with the fact that the industry is more consolidated today than ever in history. There are fewer choices with whom to do business, in essence, and these farmers operate with local monopolies. So what that means is that if a company threatens to pull their contract... Threatens to even delay delivery of birds. Farmers don't have any a choice. They can't go to a competitor uh, to do to do business with. So, the fear of retaliation and and the realities that you know if these farmers speak out, speak to reporters, uh, the, the company has just an almost an endless number of ways that that, that they can financially punish these growers. So. And, and, and has
0: that been your experiences, I mean, with farmers? I mean, how, what, what are we talk about in terms of what farmers are really facing? I mean, with the last thing Chris just said about farmers facing loss of their farms or their houses. I mean, I mean, is this, is this rampant? Is this huge, or are these just kind of small, narrow
1: stories? Well, I'll give, I'll give you an example of what's going on right now. Okay. We have a grower that lives in the county next to mine. Um, last June, uh, he was terminated by pilgrims. He has six houses Him and his daughter and his son all realized their incomes for their families from this farm, and he was terminated. Why was he
0: terminated?
1: Imagine what kind of uh, investment he has in six poultry houses on his farm. Huge debt. Absolutely. And uh, um, that's one of the real travesties, of the contracts that, that these companies have, and they're almost identical. I've seen contracts from Purdue, from Pilgrims, from Sanderson Farms. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's North Carolina, Texas, Arkansas. They're all almost identical as far as the provisions in them go. And it gives the company 100% control over, over you and what you do. Even even though you have a, a million-dollar or more investment in an operation like that, at any given moment they can say, you're not getting chickens anymore. People you're talking about could lose their farm tomorrow morning, or not tomorrow morning, but very soon. Absolutely. So, so and that was one of the, the protections we tried to get out of the gypsy rules. Was it? What's the uh, rule? rule? <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> Gypsy's Green Inspection Packers and Stockyards Administration. Those are the rules that we worked on for a couple of years to try to get them through, and the, these are the ones that were defunded and these uh, riders that have been attached to these appropriation bills.
2: One of the aspects of this situation that has really surprised me and got me motivated was back in 1999 when I went up to the Delmarva Peninsula mm-hmm. uh, in Maryland, Delaware to look at chicken production there. And uh, I entered a world I had never seen, and what shocked me was the farmers. And they really didn't understand the contracts that they had signed. I asked simple questions like, uh, well, what happens if the birds die? Who's responsible for that? Who assumes the risk? You know, the farmer sort of, well, I guess I do. And I said, well, who do you buy your grain from, the feed for the animals? Well, well, the company. I said, well, do you have separate weights and measures? Well, no, we just buy it from the company. They were almost like so innocent. And I thought, I can't believe I'm hearing this. And then I finally asked, you know, okay, so after the chicken eats the grain and you've got all this manure all over your farm, who owns the manure? That's worth a lot of money. And the farmer just looked at me, oh, well, We just want to get rid of it. You know, the company comes and takes it. I said, you don't have rights to the dollar value of that one. It's pelletized and turned into uh, an organic uh, fertilizer. And he just looked at me, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, And these people were working hard. I mean, these farmers were um, in debt. They were managing their operations. They were trying to work with those who they hired to work in these chicken houses, which is a dirty um, terrible job. And those people have no rights, uh, the chicken catchers in those facilities. And I thought, what am I seeing here? I can't believe what I'm seeing. And so it's, it's just, it's, it was one of those experiences that changes you. And um, I partly went up to that part of our country to understand why the Chesapeake Bay was polluted. And why was that happening and what we were going to do about that? Well, it's no, it's no accident animal agriculture had something to do with that. And so environmentally, uh, as well as you know, looking at the uh, business relationships, as well as looking at how these people were living and the kinds of pressures they were under, it seemed like the system was upside down. It seemed like those who were doing the work uh, were under terrible pressure. We spent time with the company that bought their birds, Uh, during our visit there, and the executives are doing just fine. Um, And, in fact, one of them at the lunch hour brought out this jar when I asked him, what do you do with the manure you collect from these farms? Oh, Congresswoman, you can't wait to see this. And he brought this jar full of pelletized uh, manure, dried manure, and he said, it's black gold. And I said, I know. But the farmer back that we had visited with, the farmer's, They had no contractual rights to any of it. They hadn't even thought to ask the question. So what happened in 1999 was I got the Department of Agriculture to put up on the website a fair contract. And it wasn't easy to achieve, but we did. And I worried. I said, look, if we get a fair contract up on the website, how are these farmers going to find it? And how are they going to know it's important for them to read it? But at least we got it up there. And what happened after the next president was elected, uh, the Department of Agriculture took it down. So even trying to get good information to people was a battle, and uh, it remains a battle.
0: So I'm I'm curious about how you all look at the politics of this in terms of whether you're covering it or living it or wrestling with it in Congress. I mean, it, it's part of my experience has been is that most farmers I know, whether they are contract growers or whether they are organic farmers— um, in a smaller operation. <clears throat> also, we have too many regulations telling us what to do and leave us alone. Let us do the land. Let us do what we do. We've been here for hundreds of years. That, I mean, that's one set of beliefs and principles many people have are farming. In some ways, that kind of gets in the way of the regulations you're talking about in terms of just where people's mindsets are about what can be done to change this. You know what I mean? I mean, those kind of contradictions live among the men and women that you work with every day.
1: Well, we, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, really, because... Uh, when it, as it applied to the Gypsy rules, um, those were all protections for farmers and things that we needed. I spent over two years working on that. Um, and the companies came out with a story that uh, they went to the farmers and lied to them about them. It is exactly what they did. They said, oh, this is going to cut your pay. It's going to pay these lazy growers that don't do anything. This, they're going to make as much as you do and so on and so on. Just propagated a bunch of lies about it to try to get some farmers to turn against it. And they did. Some of the farmers, but the ones who really cared about the issue and, and tried to become educated about what all it was really going to do for us farmers were were very pro the new gypsy rules that we worked on. So, you know, that's that's the kind of things that they do, and that's part of those 10 percenters I was talking about. Right. They, they get those people, they, they convince them that this is a bad thing for you, that, that the government's going to pass all these regulations, it's going to be nothing but burdensome to you, and you don't want that. So they parade them in front of Congress, and plus the money that they pay congressmen to uh, do what they want them to do—that's uh, a whole different issue. I, I don't really want to get into that today, but uh, that should be—and that's got to be changed too. That's wrong. I don't care what anybody says, and it's got to be changed.
2: And I want to say something about food safety, uh, and uh, uh, we've had issues with birds in our country where Campylobacter and these different. Um, uh, creatures that exist in chickens uh, when they're not properly raised and, and uh, treated. When I was on the committee uh, there was an, I was a new member of the committee back then and uh, Tyson's uh, came in and there's always people on the agriculture committee who come from these states right where these companies exist and Tyson's had an amendment to eliminate a second chicken wash which was a wash that that chicken would have to go through at the beginning after it was slaughtered, and then at the end. And as someone who's prepared a lot of chicken in her life for her family, (laughs) I said, well, why would they want to eliminate the second wash? We've had situations around the country where chickens have had to be taken off the supermarket shelves because they were dirty. And um, uh, by golly, they were able to get the second chicken wash eliminated. What does it matter to them when you got gazillions of chickens going across these lines and it's all automated? It's going to go through that second wash anyway. And I thought, these people have a lot of power. And too much power. Too much power in too few hands. When four companies can control the majority of chickens that the American people eat, and they can subjugate the farmers who are actually raising the animals. And then when those go to the processing plants, they can change the way that the actual process works to, in my opinion, make the product less clean when it goes to the public. That's not good.
1: That's why we're getting all these major recalls of not just chicken, but beef and pork and everything else, because they keep pushing the government to take away these bad regulations. Well, those are protections for us, a lot of them. Uh, be it the farmers themselves, or the public in general, the consumers.
0: And I remember when I interviewed you the last time on your for your book, um, Meat Racket. I mean, this is something you walked into this story about. Just for listeners who haven't heard the earlier interview, you walked into writing this story with um, no real idea what you were going to find when you walked out of the story, mm-hmm. right? Right. So I mean, so I was just to pick up on what the congresswoman and, and, and Mike just said.
3: Well, the history of, of how we got to where we are, you know. is is really a story of these companies out-evolving the regulatory structure around them. Um, You know, for example, we have strong antitrust laws in this country that are meant to protect farmers and consumers. But initially, back when these laws were passed in 1921, we didn't have big poultry companies like we did now. So they exploited that loophole for decades, that, you know, the Packers and Stockyards Act didn't have the word poultry dealers in it. And then the regulators have been trying to catch up with the companies for a long time. And I think to Congresswoman Captor's point, what what I've seen in my reporting again and again is that these companies can rely on inertia and complexity to, to sort of write the rules to their advantage. And what I mean by that is farming is out of sight, out of mind. And as long as the food is showing up at a relatively cheap price, most people don't want to think about it. And secondly, when you get down to the nitty gritty of passing antitrust laws, for example, that might protect farmers, it's very complex. And I've seen how these firms can rely on the public's attention sort of turning away and then as these issues drift through Congress, it's it's death by a thousand cuts. You know, that effort in 2008 that Congresswoman Kaptur just talked about was a big effort to get antitrust laws passed to protect farmers and consumers in this highly concentrated market. But then what happened was that through the legislative process over a long period of time, that effort you know which was passed in, in broad daylight with strong public support, it was dismantled slowly through a thousand cuts, and that's where we find ourselves today. You know, Congresswoman Kaptur... My understanding is is she's trying to pass an amendment in the House that would, it's kind of remarkable to me, sort of salvage one tiny part of this effort that was begun in 2008, which would protect farmers from retaliation, which to me seems like the most basic protection you could afford in a monopolistic market, which is to protect farmers against being arbitrarily retaliated against. And yet, these entrenched interests of the National Chicken Council or the American Meat Institute are fighting even that small of an effort. And the fact is, they they sort of have inertia on their side, and and they have a lot of Congress people who get a lot of money from them who are willing to to fight even small measures like that.
0: So, what do you do in that thing? How do you tell what Chris was talking about? What you face in the halls of Congress, no longer the majority. <laughs> So And and with the power that we were just talking about.
2: Well, you have to be realistic about how long it takes to get things done in Congress. Mm -hmm. I'm the author of the bill that created the World War II memorial. That should have passed in a year. It took us 17 years from the moment we introduced the legislation to dedicating the memorial in 2004. This is something the American people wanted and understood. All right. Now you're into something GYPSA. Who knows what GYPSA is? Nobody's met a chicken grower or chicken catcher. Uh, It's a complicated issue. It takes time, and you have to be persevering and enduring. And I want to thank the farmers who've organized. Uh, I want to thank uh, the writers like Chris who have um, chosen, out of your own initiative, to try to reveal a story that I believe is terribly important to our country. Most families eat chicken. Uh, They would want to believe that those who are responsible for providing the food for their table have been treated fairly in the process, and they would not want to know the ugly story of what actually happens.
3: Could, could I please jump in here and talk about what GYPSA is very quickly? Because it's really fascinating. A hundred years ago, this group of companies called the Meat Trust really controlled the meat markets. This was back in the age of Robert barons and the Standard Oil Company these few firms uh, controlled about eighty percent of the market and we passed strong antitrust reforms so that they couldn't manipulate markets so that they couldn't punish farmers and so that they couldn't overcharge consumers and it was a thing called the packers and stockyards act it was an important antitrust law jipsa is the office that administers that they're the antitrust cop on the beat they're really the only federal antitrust authority for the meat business and it, the the Act, the Packers and Stockyards Act, has been undermined by court cases, by lobbying, and I think the effort to strengthen Gipsa, to pass this Gipsa rule, again, it's, it's this effort to sort of let the regulatory structure catch up with where the market has gone, and so it, it sounds like a very abstract thing, Gipsa, but in fact, uh, it's it's an important and supposed to be pretty simple body of law, but it's really been undermined.
1: Let me let me give you a good example of one of the lies that the companies propagated when they were fighting against the gypsum rules here in, in Washington. Uh, one, they came out with a number, and I don't remember exactly what it was. I got it at home somewhere. It's like 120 or $160 million a year. It was going to cost them, the companies, to implement these gypsum rules. Well, I went back and, and took their total production for a year for all the companies in the United States, the bound chicken that they produce and divided that by this number that they came up with. And I'm still not happy with that number. I don't know where they got that. I mean, I I think it's very overinflated. But uh, dividing the chicken production by this amount of money, they said it was going to increase their costs. It it amounted to like one ten thousandth of a cent per chicken. One
0: thousandth
1: of 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 a cent. So for every 10,000 chickens, it would cost them a penny. That's how much it was going to be. Now, that's a real added cost to them and their production, isn't it?
2: I think you should give the number about if you go and get a bucket of chicken from one of these franchises, how much the consumer pays and what did the farmer get out of that. I thought that was the most vivid example in yesterday's briefing.
1: Yeah. That was one of the examples I told everybody about yesterday. If you go to KFC or Popeye's or wherever it does matter, you know, you get a bucket of chicken. It's around $26, 28 30 for a 12-piece meal. Well, out of that 26 or $28, uh, KFC or Popeye's or whoever keeps like 21 or $22 of that, the integrator they bought this chicken wholesale from gets about 5 or $6, somewhere around there. And the farmer who spent six weeks raising that chicken that you're buying gets 30 cents. 30 cents. 30 cents of that $28. The, the taxes are 2 or $3. And the farmer gets 30 cents.
0: you listen to Sound Bites here on the Mark Steiner Show, where we're talking with Ohio Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur, West Virginia poultry grower Mike Weaver, and investigative reporter Christopher Leonard about contract chicken growing and the role of the legislature. There's a great deal more of this conversation when we return, so don't go away. Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, a witty look at our food, our agriculture, and our future. Here on the Mark Steiner Show, broadcasting out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and heard on Marvel Public Radio, WSTL 90.7 FM. We've been listening this hour to a conversation I recorded last week in Washington, D.C., about contract poultry growers. And here's the rest of the conversation, featuring Ohio Congresswoman Marcy Captor, West Virginia poultry grower Mike Weaver, and investigative reporter Christopher Leonard. It's, it sounds like it's almost impossible from the things that you've been saying, Mike Weaver, both in your testimony and and I read your testimony that you did before the Maryland State Legislature last year. Was it last year?
1: No, that was a but was
0: but, but they, on the on the on the Farmers' Rights Act, Farmers' Rights Act, and in, in Maryland, the Food and Water yeah. Watch was pushing. Right. Um, but for farmers to come out. And actually say what they want to say. I mean, that's the problem, but part of the problem. I think we
2: need a cooperative of producers who speak with one voice. Because that's where the pressure point is. If these companies all of a sudden couldn't Mm -hmm. get those birds and there was an interruption in the market, they would go crazy. (laughs) And I would love to organize that uh, where no farmer felt alone. What? that every farmer felt that they were part of a team. Right, right. And that team had power.
1: Well, companies discourage that to the nth degree. They, I'll give you a good example of that. When, in in the past when we've had instances where issues have come up and we've tried to organize, um, they they do things like uh, put one of their employees outside the building where you're having a meeting, taking pictures of people that are going in there. Uh, today, this, to this very day, when I've called him and said, we have an issue here we need to, to, to discuss. They say, you can come as an individual grower, but we will not address you as the president of that association. They refuse the to us.
2: Another pressure point would be the chicken catchers in the houses. If they didn't have that labor, which generally comes here, either undocumented or with papers to work for a short time from foreign countries, and you would interrupt that flow you couldn't produce. There has to be a pressure point in the system right. somewhere. Right. Consumers can organize. It's very hard to do a boycott of chicken in our country, right? But it seems to me that the people actually doing the work and the most at risk with their investment are atomized. They're purposefully made to feel weak when, in fact, if there was a way of bringing them together you would have a force strong enough to have equal standing on the scales of justice. And that doesn't exist in this industry.
3: It, 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 if I could say it, I mean, these, I, for the meat I, I interviewed some of the people that built these companies, the lawyers, the attorneys, the right. executives. They, they, yeah. they realized back in the 60s that if, if farmers ever were able to get together, they could have tremendous bargaining power with the firms. And that's why we see the structure we see today. It's intentional and it's very conscious. You know, for example, the payment system in poultry, unlike almost any other business in agriculture, pits farmers against each other. They, the farmers are ranked against each other. Right. So they know that they can't cooperate. And, and that's
1: very intentional. And now, we don't even know who, who else we're, we're being forced to compete against. When I, when I get a printout of my settlement for the week when my chickens get processed, my name's the only name on it. Even though there may be 26, 28, 30 growers that I'm forced to compete against, the only person I know is me
2: purposely done. Maybe Willie Nelson could do a concert in West West Virginia, and we could do our best to invite in that's all farmers country. involved in poultry production, and we could help them feel their power. We need to organize them. We need to have them together, not feeling alone. They shouldn't be afraid. Nobody should be afraid in this country. It's America.
0: And, and your idea, Congresswoman, I think is not a crazy idea. I mean, like Willie Nelson, some people coming in doing that, I don't think that's Stephen Stills, whoever. I think. I don't think that's. I think that's actually could happen because I was thinking as you all were just talking, um, as an old civil rights worker and organizer from way back forty years ago or so. I mean, that's what. That's the danger it took is like going inside and organizing people quietly, in people's homes as opposed to like public meetings, so you can get something done, because that's the only way you're gonna be able to organize chicken growers, because they are. That's what. Because they're scared. They can't. They're gonna go into debt. They can lose everything they had. You know, people have been on their farms for hundreds of years, some people, right? Some of your neighbors have been on their farms for hundreds of years.
1: Yeah, but the first thing we need is laws to protect those people when they do that. You know, there's, there's no, let, let's say we had a big rally and got all the growers in the country, everybody all, all together at the same time, and everybody agreed that these are wrong, this has got to be changed. As soon as they went home, uh, they would start getting intimidation from the companies. When, uh, when the USDA had those uh, different meetings around the country, uh, and poultry was one of them they had it in normal alabama i was one of the panel members down there we had growers show up there telling us that their service text from the company came to them and said you better not go to that meeting Mm -hmm. we had had other growers that called and said sorry i'm not going to come they've they've warned me that if i show up i'm not going to get chickens anymore and those are the kinds of things they do every day So, so to that point, when you talk about sort of the legal structure around
3: this, I mean, the way I see it, you talk about how can you get to the point where the farmer gets more than six cents for that $28 bucket of chicken. Our policymakers allowed the meat industry to become highly consolidated and allowed these companies to have monopoly power. That's done. And in that kind of situation, I think you have sort of two public policy approaches to solve it. You can either break the companies back up, and create a truly competitive market again because competition is the lifeblood of a you know healthy capitalistic economy. You can do that, or you can allow the monopolies to remain and sort of impose upon them a set of laws that kind of simulate competition, laws that uh, protect people, whether it's farmers or consumers, from monopolistic abuses. I think those, you know, history shows those are kind of the two basic approaches you can take. And the reality is I think that the choice of breaking up Tyson Foods and JBS is difficult to achieve politically right now, to put it mildly. So to kind of have some sort of body of antitrust law that would help
1: create the conditions of a competitive market might be the easier approach. And a good way to do that would be to start with uh, giving us some inputs into our contracts, our contracts are take it or leave it company says, here's the provisions. You sign this, and you grow chickens. If you don't, you don't get chickens anymore. That would be a great place to start right there.
0: And, I, I mean, there is a synergy here to that organizing thing you were talking about and what you're talking about in terms of, uh, in, in, in terms of what needs to be in the law to protect the growers, as yeah. you're talking about, right? Right now. And, and, I, and uh, I mean, I think that, that I'm, I'm curious where you think this is going to go. You, you, you and, and Congresswoman Pingree, right, from Maine, yes. um, are the ones who are pushing this idea. Yes, we are. So what kind of support do you have?
2: And also uh, members of Congress like John Lewis from Georgia, Georgia. who went on the trip with us to Delmarva Peninsula Uh many years ago. Um, And uh, our goal, our initial goal, is to allow the U.S. Department of Agriculture to carry forward the Farm Bill as we passed it, and that is to allow these farmers to have contract rights that are non-discriminatory, where they can't be retaliated against, uh, where there's justice actually, and uh, where they have a right to a fair contract, and that the Department of Agriculture would be there as their backup. That's what we have a Department of Agriculture for, and um, the, uh, uh, not to have Congress keep thwarting the law that was passed and not permitting the USDA to do its job. So it's the law of the land, and these big companies, imagine four companies, so powerful, that they can thwart the law of the United States that was passed in two thousand and eight that 's too much power to too few we 've got how many contract growers are there in the poultry industry around our country well,
1: there's at least twenty five thousand and i 've heard quotes of forty thousand so it 's somewhere between twenty
2: five and
3: forty All right. And, so and these, these contract farmers are important. I, I want to make that point. These aren't, We think of farmers as sort of a small operation, but these are folks uh, in small towns who operate large complexes of, of giant factory farms that are really more like small factories. These people are the economic pillars of rural communities, so how they're treated really matters to big portions of America, where this is an important part of the economy
0: that 's an important point to make, because people say it 's just it 's talking about how they are a small part, of, say of Maryland where we 're from uh, on the eastern shore anywhere around, but they 're not I mean they are that 's where the argument can be made that this, these are economic pillars of the community they can 't just be squashed and they and, and we try to look at the people who run these farms like the farms your neighbors run. Uh, Mike, or that as as some kind of um, industrialist, but they're not; they're farmers. This is where farming is. These are farmers trying to make a living to keep the land they've been on for hundreds of years. In some some fa- in some cases, I mm-hmm. so that, that you know this is people. This is I think that that's an important point to make.
1: Yeah, and in the state of West Virginia, the, the uh, poultry alone uh, amounts to uh, uh, about fifty percent of the total agriculture production for the whole state. So it's huge in West Virginia. So I'm sorry. Well,
2: I, I was moment. just thinking that one of the threats to the United States is that um, more and more of our food is being imported, and it's very important for us to find answers to continue producing in this country. But one of the threats the uh, companies use is that, well, you know, if you try to implement the law, we'll produce the chicken in China right. and that. bring it into the United States. Right. And I can tell you, I've had experiences, America's had experiences, with imported product uh, from China that has literally killed people. Uh, Something called heparin, which is a medical product, um, had uh, false um, ingredients in it, purposefully injected because it was cheaper in China, and people died in this country. Now, the conditions in China are not like the conditions in this country. These farmers try to run good houses. Uh, The companies, obviously we have fights with the companies as to what is clean and what condition these chickens should arrive on the U.S. market. We have food safety inspection uh, and so forth. We have a system to protect the health of the American people. We want production in this country, and we want farmers to be able to have a voice in that, and we want them to have fair contracting. And the companies... Um, are making good profits. And it's been amazing to me, if you look at the shelves and how much you're charged for chicken or pork or beef, whatever, it doesn't matter what happens in the marketplace. Uh, If there's overproduction, let's say, of pork, the price doesn't drop Uh, because the companies have such power. They almost set the price. Um, We had, at one point, pork producers in Ohio... were going out of business. I mean, they were just selling their hogs for nothing, practically. And I would go to the supermarket shelves, and the price of pork wouldn't go down. I said, what the heck is going on here? There was no market elasticity. So these markets are not elastic markets. And the farmers deserve standing. They're the ones that are really holding the system together (laughs) between the land, the animals, the processing companies, and the ultimate consumer. And they deserve better treatment than they're getting right now in our country, as do the workers inside those houses where these chickens are grown. They're almost invisible. Um, and there are more of them than there are farmers. You don't hear a peep right. from there. Uh, they are completely a bonded workforce. I I can't forget it because I can see the conditions under which they were working, and God forbid any one of us would have to do that for a living. Uh they need protection, and they don't have it.
1: I mean, this money these mic. companies are making right now is, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, well, I'll use Pilgrims for uh, an example. They just, uh, over the winter, did a payout of $1.5 billion to their stockholders, and it's been almost 20 years since growers have had an increase in pay. Wow. Yeah, and and they've been realizing these tremendous profits for the last four or five years. Still, no increase in pay for the growers, even though our costs, like heating our houses, electricity, Take insurance, house to build the houses and whatever prices, else you have to do. Everything has just, well, it's. I actually went to them and said, Look, we need a 30% increase in our pay because our, I ran in numbers, our, my costs had uh, increased anywhere from 30% up to 300% over what it was 20 years ago. So I told them. We, well, I told them, actually, we need a 40% increase in our pay. Uh, and they said, oh, no, you don't need that much. I said, well, just exactly what are you basing that on? Here's the numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't lie. Uh, well, you know, you, you know what, you know what his, his reaction to me was, well, you know what you were getting into when you got into this business? That's what he said. And I said, no, I didn't. Had I known that, I would never have done it, Period. Of course, he didn't know what to say about that.
2: I think it's very interesting to listen to the poetry of the words people are using around the table here. The word farmer versus the word grower. Mm. Our Mm. country, if you go back to the Constitution, the whole idea of independence, this feeling of freedom in the agricultural marketplace was very fundamental to the founding of the country. When the language changes to being from an independent farmer to a grower, you are subjugated to some bigger force uh, above you. And um, I just think that we as a country have to think about what it means to be a farmer in America today. And when you are a subjugated force, <laughs> you aren't free. And uh, they need more footing in the marketplace. It's been slowly eroded in many sectors, uh, not just um, in poultry And um, that relationship has slowly changed over time, and I don't think it's healthy for our country. And what's interesting is, if you look at the age of farmers in our country now, it's about 63, 64, something like that. And I say to myself, where's America's next generation of farmers going to come from, or is it all going to be imported? And where does that place America as a nation, her food vulnerability, if you ultimately snuff out those who so much want to contribute to the betterment of the country and become more and more reliant on imports. We become, a, we become a dependent nation rather than an independent nation. So to me, there's a lot at stake for liberty in the way these farmers are treated.
3: I, you know, I just wanted to follow up on that. And, and, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote a lot about the importance of not just having the ability to cast a vote, but having a measure of economic sovereignty as well. And that's where this whole sort of agrarian democracy idea grew up from. And while, while many of us aren't actually on the land anymore, it is an important concept that people have a measure of control and independence over their economic life. And that's exactly what we have seen disappear in this vitally important market. You heard the voices of Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur,
0: who represents the 9th Congressional District of Ohio in the United States House of Representatives. West Virginia poultry grower, Mike Weaver, who is president and co-founder of the Contract Poultry Growers Association of the Virginias, and Christopher Leonard, investigative reporter and author of The Meat Racket, the secret takeover of America's food business. We close out Sound Bites this week with a recipe for gluten-free vegan alfredo from Nigel Wright, who is co-owner of Land of Kush Restaurant and co-organizer of the Vegan Soul Fest.
4: Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, i've been playing around in the kitchen I, I looked at some recipes I had this taste for uh, alfredo vegan alfredo uh, and also gluten free so i you know have my my feel for Italian food and I stumble across this uh pasta recipe under uh, the simple vegan blog now what I do sometimes is I look at recipes and and I kind of tailor them to you know how I want them to be so in this particular recipe I looked at some of the ingredients and I may have added more added less so on and so I substituted. it. Um, it only took five minutes to prep and uh, 20 minutes to cook. So we're talking about a total of 25 minutes, so it doesn't take that long. Uh, I used uh, two cloves of garlic and um, two teaspoons of uh, extra virgin, E-V-O-O, extra virgin olive oil. Uh, the recipe initial recipe called for two cups of cauliflower, so you can use that, but I actually used broccoli. One and a half cups of almond milk, and you can substitute whatever... Vegan milk that you want. Um, in this case, I used unsweetened almond milk uh, and salt and pepper to taste. So, whatever your taste for that salt or pepper is season it you can even throw some uh, a dash of cayenne pepper if you want that spice. I'm not into the spice, real hot spice, so I didn't play around with the cayenne on this this run. 2 tablespoons of nutritional yeast. The yeast makes things a little more cheesier and all, you get your B12 out of it. <laughs> the initial recipe called for a tablespoon of lemon juice, but I substituted orange juice. So you can do lemon juice, orange juice, whatever you feel. And then I had some uh, rice flour spaghetti. The initial recipe called for gluten-free uncooked sp- spaghetti. I use rice, rice flour spaghetti. So you want to mince the garlic. So you take the garlic cloves and you mince them and um, you put uh, the olive oil, the two teaspoons of uh, olive oil, and you want to kind of brown the garlic. So that shouldn't take any more than four minutes add the almond milk and bring it to a boil and then you can add your seasonings, your salt, pepper, your cauliflower, or your broccoli, whichever you decide to use. And you want to cook that until it's soft so that may take about six, seven minutes. So you want to make sure that it's soft. Once that's done you can transfer all of that to the blender. Then you add your nutritional yeast. We said two tablespoons of nutritional yeast and your lemon or orange juice, whichever you decide. And you want to blend that until it's smooth. So at that point, you're cooking your pasta. So I have my, co- my I usually cook my pasta before I do anything, whether it's uh, you know vegan stir fry or whatever my pasta is usually already cooked pasta or rice so you want to have your pasta cooked out al dente or according to whatever the package directions are drain the pasta and then you just pour it into the pan with the sauce and you stir it up and you can serve in this particular recipe I added uh, a few more florets of broccoli to kind of Make it look nice and and greener. You can add whatever else you want, whether it's peppers. And then here, you're set to go. It serves four. And it was delicious. (laughs) Very good. I I gave some samples to uh, the cooks in uh, the restaurant, the Landakush restaurant, and they all loved it. Some uh, white wine would go good with it as well.
0: (laughs) Thanks to Nigel Wright co-owner of the Land of Kush Restaurant and Catering here in Baltimore and co-organizer of Vegan Soul Fest, that delicious recipe. And as always, if you have thoughts about today's program, write us at talk at steinershow.org or tweet me at Mark Steiner. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Del Marvel Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.